Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. All right, I'm going to go ahead and just start us up since we have kind of a short session and uh, uh, lots of people who I uh, routinely pick on, who I'm picking on again here, um, and and uh, one or two uh, new folks. So I'm um, Michael Cotis. I am now a board member of the Society of Environmental Journalists and the author of Megafire, and I'll be moderating this panel. And uh, I'm going to introduce uh, our, our speakers here. Uh, so uh, Jennifer Balch is the director of Earth Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder, which uh, she'll explain a bit more to you, but basically uses big data, satellite imagery, uh, uh, in the case of what I worked on uh, with her, uh, interesting forest service records to uh, kind of solve big environmental problems, taking lots of big picture stuff and then drilling down into it. And it's, they're doing some really amazing work. Tony Cheng is with uh, the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute here at Colorado State University and has worked for uh, decades really on uh, wooey issues, wildland urban interface issues and how to make forests on the front range in particular healthier, less prone to severe out, uh, disturbances. Um, uh, Rod Moraga uh, is a neighbor of mine now, uh, but uh, a longtime friend. Uh, works uh, is one of the founders of Anchor Point, which is actually a private company that works in wildfire mitigation and uh, planning for wildfires. So uh, working with communities and watersheds using, again, satellite data, mapping, et cetera, to figure out how to uh, prevent uh, uh, valuable resources from being damaged by the inevitable fires we're going to see. Um, and then Chela Garcia is with the, I want to make sure I get this right, the Director of Conservation Programs at the Hispanic Access Foundation and works a lot on environmental justice issues related to wildfire. And one thing that we don't talk enough about and that I've actually been dealing a lot with lately is uh, the justice issues both of fires and how we deal with wildfires and uh, prepare for them and recover from them. And then uh, finally, George Worthner is an ecologist, uh, author of a number of books, and uh, uh, to some degree author and the editor of a book called Wildfire, A Century of Failed Forest Policy. It's one of these Tompkins conservation books that is actually a beautiful coffee table book, as well as a fabulous resource for anybody that's covering uh, the wildfire issues. And he may even still have a few free copies with him, but if not, um, <laughs> but if not, he, he, he does, uh, you know, I've had, uh, I've got my old dog-eared copy and I've had several other, others come to me free and then pass them on to students of mine. So it's a, it's a book that you can get your hands on without paying a lot of money for it. And if you're doing wildfire, it's actually a nice book to have by your computer. It's a great resource. And so, uh, you know, we, uh, the, the initial idea with this uh, panel was uh, after uh, the uh, fires of a year ago, uh, you know, a lot of talk as there often is after a bad fire season that, you know, if we just were logging, you know, as much as we should be logging, we would solve the fire problem. It's an easy fix. And uh, uh, as journalists, we're all really suspicious of easy fixes. Um, so we, uh, we kind of expanded this idea of can we log our way out of this to can we log 
graze, thin, burn, zone, or rake our way out of this. And I'm going to open this up um, <clears throat> going down the line here and, and ask each of our speakers to address one thing that has been pre uh, presented as kind of a quick fix for our wildfire problems that isn't such a quick fix. And then one thing that maybe does work a little bit, at least in certain circumstances, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, talk a bit about that and take questions from the audience. And I'm going to start out by saying, we can end this right now. Yes, we can rake our way out of this. There are 140 million dead trees in California, and if we turned all of those trees into rakes, we would solve our wildfire problem. Um, but with that, I'm going to start uh, start with Jennifer and ask uh, her: Is there something that you see as kind of a you know a regular uh, solution that is presented that's not such an easy solution? Okay, so there's three things that make fire, climate, fuels, and ignitions. And um, I'm going to speak to the last one, and I'll let our other panelists speak to other pieces of this puzzle, but people provide 84% of the ignitions that start our nation's wildfires over a roughly two-decade period. Now, climate change is setting the stage for big, nasty fires, and people are essentially providing the spark. And What's going on right now with PG&E and the blackouts is really a, a Band-Aid on, on part of the problem of human ignitions. And so other sources are campfires, driving your car off the side of the road, debris burning, um, fireworks. The single day in the U.S. with the largest number of human-started fires is actually July 4th. Um, we have evidence of 7,000 events that happened on July 4th over the last several decades. So people need to be thinking about, and we need to be thinking about how our activities are essentially providing ignitions. So that's one piece. Good morning. Um, I'll probably steal some other people's thunder, but that's what you get for sitting so close to Mr. Codis here. Um, so one, I think, a popular myth is that uh, we can, when we do some kind of forest vegetation management project, the fuels reduction, where we, we do go go through thinning, um, then we're done, right? Our risk has been reduced, and uh, we're we're good and we're safe, and we can declare victory. And in reality, that um, you know, when we have especially wet seasons, a lot of those things grow back and they just create fuel for the next round. And so I think one of the challenges that we've had with um, fire risk reduction, especially not only around the wildland urban interface, but also around larger landscapes, is that it really is a, a, a social organizational problem. We have a lot of institutions and organizations that stovepipe a lot of their um, the work that they do, the planning, how they think about uh, fire management and fire risk management, and a lot of the work that my organization does, at least on a local scale, is try to create spaces for those individuals and organizations to get together to have a more integrated and strategic long-term uh, plan for linking forest vegetation management with community preparedness, with um, cross-training across jurisdictions for different organizations to be able to um, have better options for uh, fire management when those fires do start. So it's less of a biophysical problem and much more of a social, organizational, and institutional problem. 
Um, I don't think what I'm going to say was on the list, but uh, more air tankers. So uh, <laughs> there's this myth that if we had more air tankers and more firefighters and more engines, we wouldn't have this fire problem. Um, and as an active firefighter for over 30 years now, I can tell you that typically what happens is the weather changes and we look like heroes again. And uh, so uh, there's, if we took the kind of money that we put into equipment and uh, even at the local level where uh, we have a thing called the ISO, which deals with your insurance rates, which uh, lower your ISO, the lower the insurance rate you pay. So everybody works towards this goal of reducing the expense, but really haven't done anything to actually reduce the risk that, that is coming from wildfires. And so uh, I see this again and again. I, I am on a volunteer department. Uh, we're a mountain department. And they keep buying what we call type one engines, right? These big gigantic pumper trucks. They can't even go up one of the roads. But having them helps the entire community get a lower rating. Mm -hmm. So it's a false sense of security that everyone thinks, well, if my rating got lowered, we must be less at risk from fire. And it's like, no, you're not. It's just an old, antiquated way of rating things, and we can't get them changed. So that's, that's how what I would got. you how would you invest the money that you save? Funny, you should ask. <laughs> if you take if you take the cost of one air tanker and you apply it towards mitigation and, and planning and, and everything that goes on in, in the pre-fire uh, times, you could probably get an amazing amount of work done that would ultimately save and protect more than, than an air tanker can. Um, so as Michael mentioned, we do a lot more work around environmental justice and making sure that communities of color, specifically Latino communities, have access to um, resources and knowledge and, and um, bridging that gap between agencies and decision makers with, with Latino communities across the country and specifically in the Southwest. And so one myth is that, you know, if we give these agencies more capacity, um, then, you know, all com the, the entire community will be prepared. And that's, that's a myth because if they are not culturally or linguistically competent, then you're not going to reach everybody in that community. You're not going to gain the trust to be able to appropriately plan for all members of that community. And so it's not just about, um, you know, getting more agents um, within the Forest Service or on BLM land or, you know, in these fire departments. They have to be um, trained to be able to build that that trust with the, those specific communities. And so um, that's kind of not a, not a quick fix because you can't build trust overnight. Um, I want to address the idea that um, sort of amplify what was said before that uh, we can actually stop fires under uh, all conditions. And I'll just tell a little story. I <clears throat> wrote a book about the Yellowstone fires back when they happened, and I was going through the historical archives at the park headquarters. And and there had, was a big fire in 1930s, and the, uh, in the report, you know, all typewritten and everything, it said, we finally got the fire under control, had a hell of a time breaking camp in the rain, and, uh, <laughs> which gets to the point that he just mentioned, uh, how much the weather and climate influences wildfires. And the majority of wildfires burn under what you might call low to moderate fire weather conditions. And those kinds of fires we can control. We can stop if we want or suppress. But under a very small percentage, and it's just less than 1% of the wildfires that account for almost 
all the acreage burned annually. If you look at the statistics, it's the fires that we all heard about the, uh, you know, uh, that uh, are famous in the news because they're burning under extreme fire weather conditions. And those are low humidity, uh, high temperatures, uh, usually drought as a component of it, and then high winds. And the winds are really the big thing. And the reason the winds are so important is the winds blow embers well in front of the fire. And, um, and if you go around to a lot of these community fires that have burned down, a good example would be the Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa. The closest the fire front actually got to that town was about a mile and a half away. And it was the embers that rained down on the uh, buildings uh, that burned down that community. Um, and the embers can do uh, like the uh, Eagle Fire, which burned in the Columbia Gorge a couple of summers ago. It, was, it went across to Washington, across a mile and a half of the Columbia River. There's no fuel there. So this really raises the point, do fuel reductions on a landscape scale, number one, are they really going to be effective during those conditions? And, and the conclusion is, if you go around and look at these large fires, that they don't really work very effectively. Focusing right next to the community can be an effective strategy. And the other part of that is, um, about 1% of the fuel reductions actually encounter a fire during the time that they're halfway effective, which gets to the point that somebody here mentioned that the grass and the shrubs grow back over time. So, so you really have to question whether this strategy is the best way to be spending our money and time. Uh, really, we ought to be making, we're not gonna stop those big fires, particularly with climate change. We're gonna see more and more, I think. Uh, so can we make our communities and our homes safer to basically uh, avoid uh, catastrophe for the community. And the other part of it is large fires are actually ecologically important too. And, and I wanna make that point that the snag forests that come in after a fire are really critical to a lot of wildlife. Um, uh, there's two thirds of wildlife species depend on dead wood at some point in their life, whether it's snag or wood on the ground or something like that. So I, from my perspective, I wouldn't wanna prevent those large fires anyway, so. Okay, so I'll you know maybe uh, dive a little bit deeper into the first uh, 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 thing that we talked about here, which was the initial idea for the panel is you know uh, can we log our way out of this? And there, most people probably understand that there is an economic conundrum at uh, the root pardon the pun, of this idea of can we log our uh, forests and reduce our fire threat. And, you know, it's pretty simple. The, the trees that are valuable to a timber operation are the big granddaddy trees that are generally resistant to wildfire and make a forest less prone to a really bad burn. And the stuff that is overgrown in most of our forests is scrub and tiny little trees and scrappy little bits of wood that have very very little economic value. So it's really hard to have a logging company come in and make the kind of profit that they want to make and re actually uh, remove the fuel that's most problematic. Um, passing that down to the panel again, are there ways for us to remove fuel from our forests and have you know an economic benefit like uh, you know uh, at least one person in Washington DC has said we should be pursuing? <laughs> So there's no way we're going to log our way out of the fire problem. And 
The reason why, there's many reasons why I say that. One is the type of removal of fuel that we need to get kind of back to what the systems look like with some sort of frequent prescribed low intensity burning is taking out the smaller trees and leaving large trees with spaces in between them. And that's not a logging operation. That's a that's a healthy forest system, but that's not a clear cut. And in fact, logging can actually add more fuel to the ground and drier fuel because it opens up the canopy, it perforates the canopy, and essentially you get more solar radiation hitting the ground, increasing temperatures and drying out fuels. And so the one thing I do appreciate about the rake comment is that at least it's focused on where the problem is, which is where people live. And so I think that if we're gonna do fuel treatment, it has to be where people live and work and the things that we are, that are really vulnerable, our homes and our lives. Um, so that's my short opinion on this problem. Um, and it's not just a, a vegetation or plant fuel problem, it's also a home fuel problem too. And we saw that particularly in the campfire where there's these amazingly devastating images of homes that burn to the ground, but the trees and the grass are still standing. And so that was an urban fire in a forest. So we actually have a complete paradigm shift in the way that we think about fire to be thinking about not only the, the plant fuel, but also the home fuel. There are about 600 different uh, elements that come off of a forest fire that go into the air. We only barely understand a couple of those, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, particulate matter. There's a whole lot of junk that comes off of fires. We have no idea what's going up in smoke that's burning when, it, when homes are burning. So that's another thing that the scientific community has to explore is like what toxins are we exposing people to across thousands of miles um, when we have these large urban, semi-urban wildland fires. Anybody else wanna weigh in? Sure. Um, so this is by no means, you know, a free pass for the timber industry. I actually wanna speak to a smaller scale, uh, very much to what you mentioned, um, clearing out the necessary um, trees, not the old growth, uh, you know, trees that, that actually create bigger, larger fires. Um, so in the community of, New, there's a community in Northern New Mexico called San Cristobal. Um, and as many of you all know, San Cristo, or New Mexico is a large majority, a large percentage Latino and Hispanic, and there's a difference. Um, I won't go into that. Um, but the US Forest Service actually has a pilot program in this community. Um, I'm not quite sure what it's called, but um, how many of you all are familiar with the acequia, what, what acequias are, a handful of you, okay, and how it use, uses a mayordomo, which is a trusted leader in the community to kind of um, manage uh, a water system for the community and for agriculture. So it takes that similar system and applies it to forest management. And so this pilot program is looking at how do they contract, not contract it, because it's not a timber, you know, um, uh, industry, it's it's very much clearing the necessary growth, uh, smaller trees, and so what it does is it pays three hundred dollars per acre to um, a leñero. A leñero is somebody who cuts down trees um, to clear that the the trees that are marked by specific biologists. It's not you know just clear cutting the whole acre, um, but it, they, they're specific trees that are marked by biologists that are seen as you know. Um, 
exactly what you mentioned. I'm sorry, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I can't speak to that. Um, so it's not just clear cutting the whole the whole acre. Um, and then the the leñero, the person who's doing the work, can actually use that wood for their wood stoves back home. So they get to keep the wood that they clear that's clearly marked. Um, and then they're they're provided three hundred dollars per acre, and what this does is it's a it's the community. You have to they they choose those leñeros from the San Cristobal community first, and then they open it up to the other communities surrounding the Carson National Forest. And this is important because it not only provides economic stimulus to that specific community, it provides them wood. Um, They have enough wood to then sell it if they don't use it in their own homes during the winter or for cooking. Um, So it actually provides economic stimulation for rural communities that, you know, the only other jobs that are available are either, you know, mining or resort jobs at the uh, you know Towski Resort, they're they're low-paying jobs. So this is a really great opportunity for local communities to actually contribute to um, forest management in a healthy way. Um, it's not a timber operation, um, and it actually provides you know families that extra cash that might get them you know paying their bills month to month. Uh, a <clears throat> couple of comments on this. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is a lot of fires are not in forests. For example, the Thomas Fire that burned around Santa Barbara and Ventura was mostly chaparral. Uh, you have lot, some of the largest fires in Idaho were in sagebrush, grassland, etc. So uh, that's one aspect of it. In other words, thinning the forest is not necessarily going to solve the problem for a lot of communities. The other is um, gets at the point that was mentioned before, is that uh, when you go and do thinning or any kind of uh, vegetative management, you create, you eliminate competition. So you actually increase the growth of fine fuels. And what burns in a forest fire or any fire is the fine fuels. That's why you have snags left. The trees are not really burning up. It's the needles, the cones, the small branches on the trees that burn in fires for the most part. So if you increase the percentage of fine fuels, you're actually increasing the fire, uh, you know, chance of flammability. And those fine fuels need to be addressed on a very frequent rotation. So if you're going to do something around a community to try to reduce the fuels around it, it should be concentrated right there because you have to you have to maintain it. And that's a story that's not told very often. In other words, uh, you can't just come in once. If <laughs> you got to be coming back repeatedly over, you know, maybe every five to ten years to reduce those fuels. And we only have so much money and we only have so much you know, time and manpower and so forth, or woman power, as the case may be, to uh, to address those fuels immediately around a community and the immediately around the houses. And you have to look at how vulnerable are those houses going to be. And I want to tell one story about a fire in California because it's really interesting about how to think about this stuff. Um, uh, there was a fire down in, um, I think it was Los Angeles County. Anyway, about 50 houses burned down, and it came out afterwards that half of the houses burned down because of doggy doors. And why would doggy doors be a problem? Well, remember, most large fires that burn down houses are on windy days when the embers are getting blown like, you know, out of a cannon. And the doggy doors are made to open, right, in the wind, uh, easily. And they opened in the wind and the embers came in and the houses burned down. So who would have thought before they looked at this that that would make your house vulnerable? So I'm just suggesting that we really have to rethink this whole process about how do we keep our homes less uh, vulnerable to fire. And then the other part I want to real quickly, if I may, is talk about 
how do you get people out of the way, like the, uh, the campfire in Paradise? There were only two roads that led out of town, and that fire was moving as, as fast as one football field a second. Think of that. That's an incredible rate of speed. And they had to try to get everybody down those two roads. And the other part of it that failed, and they had an evacuation plan, but they didn't plan on having to get the whole town out of there at one time. And uh, one of the other parts of their evacuation plan was that we're going to call people on their cell phones, except in the first hour, 17 cell towers went down. So that, you know, people are sitting around waiting for the call from the authorities that it's time to evacuate and the call never came in. So just pointing out that there's a, we have to rethink our whole approach to uh, fires and community preparedness. I'll, uh, there's a lot here that I would agree with and, uh, you know, all the major fires um, in California have not been in big crown fire timber models. They've, they've all been in Oak Savannah and Chaparral. Uh, both of those do the same thing. They throw embers at a, a, just a, an incredible, incredible shower of embers ahead of the main fire front, and they find their way into every nook and cranny of any structure, and that's how houses burn down. They don't burn down by big walls of flame that you see on TV, um, rarely, if ever. Um, so, but I'll, I'll leave that for a moment. I want to talk about um, fuel breaks and, and defensible space because. Uh, over the years I've watched, I've gone to fire after fire, and I manage fires. And so I like to tell people defensible space, by definition, was an area that was mitigated to the point where firefighters would feel safe making a stand to protect the home. That used to work when we used to have one or two houses threatened. When we've got 100 houses threatened, 1,200 houses threatened, we no longer send firefighters in. So. Defensible space was never meant to be the same thing as, uh, you know, completely non-burnable. It's not, it's not the same thing. Standalone uh, hardening of structures is where we need to go. Uh, all those embers, if your structure is, is built correctly and doesn't have flammable um, components, then the embers will burn themselves out and nothing will happen. Uh, that's not the case right now, and obviously we've got all the older homes, so it's, you know, it's not like going to change itself overnight. But uh, I do think there's a, a lot of uh, false information, as always, that lets people think, well, I did defensible space, so I should be fine. Um, I lost my own home in a wildfire. I had great defensible space. <laughs> Didn't much matter because I had no fire engines, um, nothing to put the little one-foot flames that were backing into my house. I couldn't put them out. So uh, I just think that that's something else we got to talk about. And as far as forest restoration, I'm all for it. Um, I think we should do healthy forest restoration for the sake of the forest, the ecosystem that we're in, and doing the right things. And it, ultimately, they become more resilient. But that's not the same thing as a fuel break. And, and fuel breaks are questionable. I, I mean, they're really very specific to the site and the, and the fuels that you're dealing with as to whether they're successful or not. So, And the weather. <laughs> I'm not going to try to ask you to answer your question about the economics. Okay. Is that what we were talking about? We were talking about economics. Calculator? <laughs> five. Answer is five. Um, so, I, first of all, I, I'd like to, because, you know, this is a great conference with, uh, with the society and, and journalism, I think one thing I want to throw back to everybody is, what is the this, right? The title of the, of the uh, 
the session is the law of our crisis. Can we log our way out of this? What is the this? <laughs> I think I think we we're now we, we've got all gathered here and are talking under an assumption that we're talking about the same thing. That fire risk means the same thing, and and risk is a very is another one of these really complicated, heavily nuanced um, concepts. Depends who you are, in what place, where you are in time, where you are in space. Um, uh, so I, I want to I try to expand some nuances, and I want to build off of what Rob was saying about the force of the ecological restoration piece. And I see my longtime friend and colleague, Sharon Friedman here, uh, used to be with the Forest Service and Strategic Planning. And um, our federal lands are, um, there is a wildfire crisis that is much more beyond the wildland urban interface and the destruction of homes. So obviously home loss from wildland fires, that's, that's a really important driver of our attention, of our news cycles and those kinds of things. The, the much more chronic, um, costly issue from an environmental services standpoint is, is kind of the, the, the fire regime changes and the ecological effects that we're seeing on a lot of our more natural lands. A great example of this is on the Bureau of Land Management, a lot of the federal uh, lands in the uh, Great Basin that are being converted into cheatgrass systems. Right, we, could, we, we have now those systems that used to burn somewhat infrequently um, because of land uses and bringing in um, cheatgrass as a, as a, as a non-native species is, is costly from a firefighting perspective and costly from just kind of a natural ecosystem perspective. And so we're losing ecosystem services as a result of fires that are occurring in a lot of our landscapes. Um, the, one of the landscapes I work in is, is the Ponderosa Pine uh, forest landscape here in the Front Range, but also across the Mountain West, which have, we, we have a lot of evidence that suggests that these are adapted to more frequent fires, uh, different kind of severities, but the kinds of fires that we're seeing now are um, causing uh, the losses of those ecosystem services. They're, they're being converted into non-forest lands and those kinds of things. We can have very robust discussions about what that means and what that value is, but um, those, are, those are costs, those are, those are losses to ecological values that have economic um, uh, implications. So I want to make sure that, we, that there's a lot of opportunity to, when we talk about the wildfire crisis, it's, it's, a, it's a crisis for whom, at what scale, and, and who's asking, okay? Um, so there's, so a lot of the work that my group does is really looking at to what extent does the, are there opportunity to do reintroduce fire back into the landscape by combining it with forest thinning, thereby reducing the loss of valleys to water, water supplies and watershed values. And we're able to now starting to create economic value around those that are driving investments by water providers like Denver Water and Aurora Water and those kinds of places, because that's their bottom line. Um, the, so the third thing that I'll talk about is um, a little bit about the problem of the, the, the no to low value of the material from thinning. And as Jennifer mentioned, it's typically the small trees we're going after. Who, you know, who wants small trees? Um, 
one of the in the early 2000s when a lot of this uh, th this became a national policy push around the national fire plan um, the healthy forest restoration act healthy forest initiative uh, right around the same time there was a lot of discussion about the uh, the use of this material for um, energy and so there was sort of this it was kind of a silver bullet. A lot of people, at least in the in the forestry world, were excited about the opportunity to take this low value wood and make it into a high value product, which is energy. And um, there there's a variety of politics around it. There's a variety of kind of interesting life cycle um, assessment science around how much carbon do you actually store or lose depending on the time frame. I think there's a lot more to dig into that. And the thing that killed the conversation was natural gas. Right around the same time we were having these conversations about expanding nationally our energy portfolio, including biomass energy, we started, we started increasing our production of natural gas. The energy, uh, there's, a, there's a, the EIA, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's an it's a international um, energy agency that does a lot of, like, big analyses about consumption and uh, production of energy. And renew, uh, if we're pointing towards a low-carbon future, wind and solar kind of max out. And as, as we go out in time, the greater proportion of energy production, if we're moving towards that low-carbon future, is from biomass. And so the question is, where does that biomass come from? And so th those are some, I think, much more interesting conversations that are relating to this wildfire crisis um, that I certainly would like to see more um, exploration. Sure, go ahead. One uh, point I, I um, want to make here is a, a lot of the conversation revolves around um, one particular forest type community, Ponderosa Pine, and how much that's deviated from what is thought to be the historical condition. And, and, and there's a, a tendency to say that frequent low severity fires applies to all vegetative communities in the West, when in fact, almost all other vegetative communities have much longer fire rotations, so have been little or unaffected by fire suppression activities and so forth. So just, you know, one of the things is if you're reporting on this stuff, if somebody's saying, uh, you know, fire suppression has led to uh, a buildup of fuels in, say, lodgepole pine forests in the northern Rockies where the typical fire rotation is 200 to 400 years, well, that's a pretty big gap, you know, for between 200 and 400 years. There, there's no deviation from a historical condition, even if fire suppression w occurred there. And that also raises the other point about doing any kind of thinning in a, in a forest like that uh, on the premise that you're going to uh, affect fires because uh, the trees grow back very quickly. And if, if the fires happen every 200 years or something like that, what are the chances that during the time that you've thinned that lodgepole pine forest, 
with a two or 300 year fire rotation, that that area is actually gonna have a fire come to it. So it, it, there's a nuance here that you have to understand when, when we're talking about how, how uh, uh, what applies to Ponderosa Pine, like the Front Range here in Colorado and other places, it, it's, it's different. Uh, sagebrush is another example where, uh, and I was glad he brought up about the cheatgrass, there that sagebrush ecosystem, because of cheatgrass is burning more frequently than in the past. So it's the opposite of what most people think is a problem. There, uh, the sagebrush is being, it, it, it cannot tolerate being burnt every year because it comes back from seeds, for most species of sagebrush, that is. And so it takes many, many decades to recover from fire. So if a fire happens every five years, it, or even less, as it can with cheatgrass, you eliminate the sagebrush out there. So um, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we'll open it up uh, to questions from the audience, because um, I'm, uh, I'm sure you guys have uh, plenty. Um, and uh, this is kind of follow-up both to Tony and George, which is to, you know, as uh, somebody who's reported on wildfire now really for decades, the big surprise to me is how diverse the topic is, how many crazy stories and really surprising stories came out of this. And I grew up reading fire coverage, and it always was, you know, big fire, homes threatened, you know, noble firefighters. It was kind of the same story over and over. And when you dive into this topic, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories that really haven't been told yet and are really fascinating. And so I'll give an example that I'm working on right now, which is I'm doing a big project on the health impacts of wildfire smoke, which we don't understand very well. The biggest NOAA NASA project uh, terrestrially this year was a fleet of aircraft flying through smoke plumes to sample it and try to figure out what's in this and you know what are going to be the health impacts from that. And in reporting on that, which even struck me as a fairly simple story, I discovered, boy, there is a huge social justice issue with this because the people who are poor and lots of times minorities who live near these fires are far less likely to have HVAC systems. They have leakier houses. They very often are much more dependent on having to have their windows open to cool their homes. And so they get a worse impact of this. And not something I'd considered at all going into this. Uh, so I want to take this into a question to our panel, which is, what is the, the story related to wildfire that you don't think has been told that one of these folks could jump on? Uh, much like our, our military, think about who enrolls into firefighting. What, econ what social, economic, class, ethnicities, races, who, who, who can enroll in firefighting, just like the military. And so, and then the, we, and so they, they, they typically are from working, working, poor, uh, people that don't necessarily have access to higher education, other economic opportunities. Um, these are also, there's some now documented evidence that uh, wildland firefighters experience higher rates of suicide, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, domestic issues, mental health issues. And, and so it's, it's a real, um, uh, and I just, just kind of recently found about this at a, at a professional conference where there's been some organizational psychologists that have been doing a, a lot of research about this. And the juxtaposition that I see that I, I quite find fascinating there are those, those signs of you know, thanks and gratitude uh, of you know, communities that are, um, you know, subject to, to fires, and they have the, the wildland firefighters and all those kinds of things. But um, then I, you know, I think about, you know, those young men and women that, you know, they're, they're really struggling with their lives as a result of that 
um, that employment. And so I think those are, uh, yeah, that's, I, I think that's a story that I don't, I've only heard about recently just because I went to a poster session at a conference. Um, so one number that recently came out is that 29 million Americans are living with extreme fire risk and 13 million of those are socially vulnerable Americans. So there, there are some incredible so, so social justice questions. And so the other one that I want to pile on is how are fire suppression efforts being deployed and how expensive are the homes that we're protecting? Um, I think there's a lot to be, and I, you know, I don't want to say that this is like a firefighting challenge only. This is like we need to think about how these resources are being distributed and, and where are the homes that we're protecting and how are we helping communities um, with less resources be prepared and helping them to adapt to the wildfire crisis. Um, I think those are two critical issues. And one thing that we haven't spoken to, which I think is incredibly important, is um, and it is in the media, but it's about the link with climate change. And we know, we've known as scientists that there's a link between climate change and wildfires for the past decade. Um, we also know, and we've teased apart for California specifically, we've seen a five-fold increase in wildfires since the 1970s. And forest fires in California in the summertime are strongly linked to climate change. Just a little bit of warming is leading to a lot more burning. And it's, this is not a projection out to 2100. This is in the here and now that we're seeing real effects of climate change on wildfires. I just wanted to add one more thing. Piling on what George was saying about the fire rotation, you know, two to 500 years for some of these cool climate forests. Um, there was a study by some colleagues of ours that have been doing a lot of work in Yellowstone, and with the warming trends, their estimation is that it'll go from two to 400 years to like 60 to 80 years. So that's another interesting story. Oh my gosh, I could say so much about this topic. <laughs> um, and I actually do want to point out, and they, we have some of these available at our booth in the exhibit area. We have a wildfire toolkit um, around Latino considerations is what we call it. Um, and this talks everything about from land use planning. And it's, it's a compilation of resources and um, resources that get you thinking. So it's not a lot of answers, but more uh, question provoking um, information. So there's everything from land use planning to public and mental health to um, recovery and response, right? And, and if you think at, about environmental justice, that's looking at the intersectionalities between health, between land use planning, between um, affordable housing, right? If you look at, at Latinos, 54% um, of Latinos rent their homes compared to 28% of their counterparts. What does that mean when a wildfire comes through that community? What is, you know, are, is there price gouging going on so that people can actually find a place to live after a fire has destroyed their homes? If you look at affordable housing in the sense that um, not only do more Latinos rent their homes, but if they own their homes, they tend to be older homes. In California alone, um, mo uh, most of the homes that did were homes that were built prior to the 2008 building code update, which means that, you know, um, which a majority of Latinos own older homes because of their socioeconomic status. So um, the majority of homes that did burn were lower income homes, households. Um, if you look at the late Christine fire last year in 2018, it actually affected the Roaring Fork Valley here in Colorado. Um, and the, the community that had to evacuate was um, a, a little um, mobile home community that was actually over 90% Latino. 
Um, and while those uh, individuals, I'm sorry, I'm getting teared up because I actually know a couple of people in that you know community, and they wanted to insure their homes, but they couldn't insure them because insurance companies said they're not even worth insuring. And so we need to consider, you know, even if people want to prepare their homes, want to get insurance, want to, you know, adapt, do, you know, are the social structures even allowing that to happen? Um, can we create regulations that say, you know, people who live in older homes, even if, if private insurance companies won't cover them, what are, the, what are the resources that we can give them so that they can actually recover afterwards? Looking at public and mental health, Latino children are 60% more likely to die, die from asthma attacks than their white counterparts. Um, all these resources are in here in, in information and data and statistics. Um, if you look at Im recent immigrants, they've already gone through so much PTSD, crossing the border and afraid of getting, you know, getting deported by ICE. Are they trusting government agencies? Are they trusting, you know, federal agents to, you know, say, hey, we're going to, you know, help you evacuate. We're going to help you recover. We're going to give you, um, you know, resources during response. Are they actually going to trust them because they're they're fearful of getting deported, right? So there's actually trauma and mental health issues around that, and there's some resources in here as well. Um, you know, approximately 33% of Latino adults with mental illness receive treatment each year compared to the U.S. average of 43%. Um, I can I can lift, list off data, but the biggest issue here is um, there may be resources out there through FEMA and through other, you know, the American Red Cross, but if you don't have a link through, you know, faith leaders, through trusted community partners and organizations, community centers, um, if you don't build that direct relationship with, with those communities and understand the differences. There can be Latinos from Mexico that don't speak Spanish, right? So you need to understand what is the indigenous language that they actually speak. There can be Hispanics in Northern New Mexico that um, very much go by Hispanic and sp speak majority English, but there's a, a cultural difference there, right? They're, they're part of the Spanish settlers, right? And then there's um, recent Latino communities in places like uh, like I said, in the Roaring Fork Valley on the Western Slope that are recent immigrants and primarily just speak English or sorry, Spanish um, and work at all of these resort towns. So if the forest really does burn down a, a specific resort, everybody's thinking like, oh, you know, that's so bad for skiing or that's so bad for mountain biking community, you know, all of these <clears throat> recreation impacts. But who's considering the the service industry workers that run those resorts that um, live off of that outdoor recreation? you know it's an 887 billion dollar industry but who's actually looking at the service industry workers that will be affected by these wildfires if it burns down a recreation area um, so I could go on yeah. I'm gonna stop it there but so yes they're at our booth um, over in the exhibit in yeah, the exhibit so area One last thing. Um, it doesn't have the footnotes because of the print, the way we could print it, but the footnotes are available on our website, which is available here. What was, what was the original question, uh, Mike? <laughs> what is, what is uh, one um, story that you don't think is getting covered by the press related okay. to the wildfire? Uh, here's one. Um, uh, dead trees. The assumption is, is that dead trees increase the likelihood of a fire. But you have to ask, again, what burns in a fire? It's mostly the fine fuels. 
So what you find is that, uh, and there's a fair amount of research to back this up, that in as uh, a tree dies, you know, immediately after, if they're like, say, from bark beetles, you might have some needles still left on it. Well, that's vulnerable to fires. But once the needles and the small branches fall off and you just are mostly a big bowl, uh, tree, tree trunk, um, they're less vulnerable to fire. And, uh, and, and, and there's actually a progression that goes through. So you have the, uh, the trees die, they're less vulnerable to fire, but the forest is now opened up. So now you get young trees growing in the understory that eventually creates more fuel. Uh, and, you know, over a period of a couple of decades, it becomes more vulnerable to fire. And then if the canopy closes up so you have not very many small trees underneath, it goes down again. So the, the, the point being is there, it's a lot more nuanced about how vulnerable places are with dead trees. And, and I, again, put the pitch that dead trees are very important ecologically to all sorts of wildlife and, and uh, carbon storage and so forth. Um, that uh, we shouldn't be talking about it as a disaster. We have these pejorative terms that are used all the time, you know, the, the bark beetles destroyed, the forest fire destroyed this and that. And I try to use words like, uh, the f <laughs> I can even go the opposite, saying like, oh, the fire just enhanced biodiversity or something like that. Put it on a positive thing instead of always on a negative. So think about the words you use to describe these events and try to be uh, maybe a little more neutral. When we say catastrophic, everybody thinks that's a disaster. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it burns the houses down, it is. And if it, you know, really affects a watershed, it might be. But you've got to look at the overall circumstances. And in most cases, it's, it's, a, it's a maybe neutral or a positive effect on the ecosystem long term. I've got one more that just occurred to me, which is um, where's the next paradise? So thinking about solutions-based journalism in the conversation yesterday and solutions-based science, like as a scientist, I'm really thinking hard about where is that gonna happen next? Because I can tell you as a scientist, I'm really worried about it. Um, I know what the trends are looking like. I know that more and more people are putting their homes in the line of fire. And so can we anticipate and actually help to solve that problem of, of giving a heads up to where that next extreme situation might happen? Okay, Rod, you've been bitching at me for years about why are you guys not writing about this or writing about that. What's top of your list? <laughs> first, first of all, everybody, whenever I hear stuff about air quality and smoke, it makes me laugh because I say, what about us, the firefighters that are actually out there? Um, if you think anyone has more impact from smoke than us, you're crazy. We have absolutely no protection. We would never go into a building, a burning building, without our SCBA, with our air mass. Yet, we, without blinking an eye, go out on wildfires, and we're out there for two to three weeks just inhaling smoke. And we have things like camp crud and all these different great terms we use for when we're hacking our lungs out and your noses and eyes running, and you just say, oh, as soon as you get out of the uh, smoke, you get some clean air in you, you'll be fine. And that's what you're you know, leaders told you when you started this thing, and we still tell all the new guys the same thing. And, uh, you know, I sit here and I, I sort of think about all these studies that have come out, and I'm like, huh. So it turns out, you know, they lied to us, and, and we have no solution. Uh, we've tried different respirators and things, and they just don't work. Uh, that's a great story, because what are you going to do if you can't engage the fire? If, if, if we truly admit, and this is one man's opinion of the world, uh, if we truly admit that the smoke is that bad for us, 
then they'd have to spend a lot of money to protect us. And, and when I say they, I mean the government because most of our firefighting resources are seasonal. Um, there's a lot of things they play little games to keep you as, uh, not to have to spend as much money and give you insurance on all these things because they keep you as a seasonal. Um, so that's a whole nother thing. But uh, the truth is, if, if we really do have, if smoke is really dangerous, then why are we still going out there and fighting these fires, you know? Are we not worth the same as the house that's burning down? So that's one thought. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, there was I'm a lot of them. Open it up to questions. Um, well, my first question, hi, I'm Sharon Levy. I'm a freelance from Humboldt County, California. Um, and in both the Tubbs fire and the campfire, there are these kind of mind-blowing scenarios where all these homes burned down and there's trees standing there fine. Um, and it's, I understand that's from embers, but can y'all explain how do you build a home that isn't going to burn from embers? I've got, a, I'm going to, I'm going to give one answer to that myself. And it's, it's just a name, Jack Cohen. Uh, <laughs> and just look up Jack Cohen on, uh, uh, online. But uh, I, I'll just, um, uh, mention a few things. Uh, uh, the, a lot of it's really simple. One, one of the things is, is a, uh, to prevent the embers, as we've talked about, any entry point. So, you know, putting screens on vents and ceilings, uh, uh, the doggy door thing I mentioned, uh, putting um, uh, glass in your windows that are more resistant to fires, uh, so the heat of a fire, etc. Uh, one of the things that's really helpful is uh, when you mentioned that the grass got to your house, just having like five feet of gravel around the whole foundation so that if a grass fire is burning, which is the way a lot of houses burn down, it's just the grass, it isn't going to get that last five feet to the foundation. Uh, so a lot of these things are relatively simple, you know, cleaning out your gutters every year um, so that there's not needles in the gutters and so forth. So those are some of the things that can be done. Well, I think you also have to start looking at uh, building codes, and, and that is something that sounds simple, but uh, there's a huge expense. And again, uh, so just to understand, I've been doing this and as a consultant for over 20 years, and when I was with the fire department, you know, we told everybody, do defensible space, it's cheap, it's easy, clean your gutters, everything will be great. And it's just not true. I mean, I've seen so many homes burned down. Um, from the from the insidious little embers that find their way in. I mean, if you, a house has to be vented, right? So there, there's the fail point. You have to have vents in your house. You have a positive pressure, right? Hot winds pushing against that house. It's going to find its way to a hole, and that ember goes in, and that's that's how it works. Or it finds a corner and it eddies in the corner, and there's you've got whatever little debris in there. Uh, so it's difficult. But if we start being more um, forceful about the types of construction materials that can be used in, in wildland interface areas, and not even in the wildland or urban interfaces we're finding out. I was on the Napa fires, and I can tell you when you're sitting at the lows across from the, you know, the highway, you are not in the wildland or interface, you're in suburbia, um, and just watching it all burn down. So um, I think it's just the reality that the construction types um, have to be different. We've got to be uh, we start looking at some new ways to vent homes, and I'm not that kind of engineer to figure that out, but there's got to be some other ways to, to meet that issue without having to expose, have those exposures everywhere. So 
but that stuff costs money and it doesn't help the people who already the homes are already built so it, but it is a place to start that from this point on we can start changing the way we do things just to amplify that um, there, there was research done on the campfire and, and uh, I'll tell you there's mixed reasons why this is a good or bad thing but the California initiated some new building codes uh, and and a percentage and don't quote me on this because I don't remember the exact percentages but the newer homes that had the building codes there was a far lower uh, mortality you might say of those homes compared to older homes that didn't follow the building codes so that's a good example of a of a sample of where uh, you know implementing building codes can make a difference. The the one qualifier I put uh, having visited the campfire is I don't know if you're lucky to be a survivor there um, because the uh, there's so much toxic soils around. There's no schools that have been lost. Uh, the water system is full of toxic stuff. Uh, in some ways, the people whose houses who survived the fire are worse off in my view, than the people whose homes burned down. But nevertheless, the statistics show that the building codes do make a difference. So, Great. And Jane, or did you have another one? I did, but what, Okay, well we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll shuffle you to the back and try to get to you. I'm Jane Braxton Little. I freelance from the northern end of the Sierra Nevada in California. And my question is about prescribed fire. Could you talk about the benefits or not from each of your professional perspectives? <laughs> As the chair of the Colorado Prescribed Fire Council, <laughs> I would like to say, um, yeah, I've been, uh, I'm a burn boss. I've been doing prescribed fire for 30 years. Uh, I am a big proponent of using prescribed burning. Um, can we uh, deal with all the smoke issues? No. Um, and again, you know, going back to what everyone was talking about, uh, that's one of the biggest discussions we're having right now is that uh, if all smoke is bad, um, it's getting harder to justify even a prescribed burn. And we, all, we usually use the argument that it's pay now or pay later. Uh, we tend to burn with uh, less intensity, smaller acreages in a wildfire, and so we have some ability to sort of control the output and the, you know, the smoke emissions and so on. However, I think the reality is there's if the smoke is bad, the smoke is bad. But having said that, um, being able to put fire back in the landscape has ecological benefits as well as uh, mitigation benefits. And um, the, the issue we, we find with prescribed burning is that we do it um, where it doesn't completely mimic natural conditions because we need to be able to control it. So we burn in the spring or in the fall. There's very few of us who are crazy enough to go do a prescribed burn in August. Um, I'd like to, but they don't let me. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, they do help. They, they need to be the follow-up to a lot of our, our uh, fuel treatments. In fact, on the Four Mile Fire, uh, that was one of the findings, is that we had done a lot of very good defensible space and, and, and fuel treatments, but we had never followed any of those up with prescribed burning. And and that is because we, the risk was too high. Uh, there isn't a flat piece of ground in that whole area. And so it would be very risky in their homes everywhere. So um, the ability for the, the, the public to tolerate mm -hmm. the risk, because it has to be a shared risk, uh, we're going to do the best that we can to do a very safe prescribed burn. But I, I've you know, sat at many a, a public meeting, and when someone directly says, can you guarantee 
that that fire won't escape, I always say, no, no, I can't, you know, we'll do everything we can to make it safe. But at the end of the day, we do lose prescribed burns and, um, you know, it looks bad uh, for everyone and then everyone gets very gun shy and then we, we shut them down, which is the worst thing we could do. So. It, well, it really depends where you are. I mean, he, I, I was in Boulder, so we, I mean, we, we pulled off a 80-acre burn. That was a pretty big deal for us. You know, in another, you know, in sage country, you can burn five, 10,000 acres. Uh, it really depends. But you're going to, I call it um, surgical precision burning when you're in the interface. Uh, it's really quite tricky because you're burning very small acreages, but you're surrounded by homes. And so you need three times the, the, the resources we're out, you know, I was just out in Durango where they burn thousands of acres because they've got uh, that kind of landscape. But we can't do that on the front range. Um, a couple of things uh, about prescribed burning, um, which was sort of insinuated. Uh, the research shows that it, mechanical thinning, that is logging the forest uh, and cutting down trees and so forth, is, is not nearly as effective as a prescribed burn. If you're going to do one of two things, you're better off doing prescribed burning. Uh, sometimes, uh, though, in many cases, the com combination of the two is the best by far. Um, and the other part of it, as he mentioned, is being surgical. Uh, the, a lot of the benefit, if you take away any kind of ecological consideration, is, is talking about making a space where firefighters can feel somewhat safe and, uh, and, and so putting it close to communities is important. But then think about it from the perspective of a Forest Service district ranger or whoever has to call the shots on this. If a fire gets away, your career is, is ruined. So there's a gun shyness for good reason for implementing these things, and then you have air qualities thrown on top of it, and uh, the uh, the change in the weather that can happen really unpredictably um, makes it difficult to do these things to the degree that should be. Uh, I'm living in Bend, Oregon right now, and the Deschutes Forest burns about 2,000 acres uh, a year. To, that's a drop in the bucket. That's just not anything near enough. But they can't get the conditions that are um, appropriate to do it with all the uh, limitations that are put on it. So that's something to know about. So um, I'll, uh, um, I'll, I'll give a plug. There's, there's this book out there um, called Megafire, and uh, it, 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 it just coincidentally has my name at the bottom of it, but I do write a lot about a prescribed burn that uh, went uh, awry here in Colorado, uh, destroyed a neighborhood, killed people, and deal with a lot of the challenges of prescribed burning um, and, and why we are not capable of burning anywhere near the uh, amount of acreage that we want to. And I also tell a lot of Rod's story, um, and you know, he can you know, dope slap me for that. Uh, who's next? Roger. Uh, recently, there's been, a, I guess, a movement that's developed in response to uh, the loss of homes in the uh, wildfire or wildland interface called Stay and Fight. And there's some you know, strong proponents who are behind it and some organizations that have pushed it. And I, I wonder if each one of you or whoever could comment on that, what your feelings are about it. You probably have some thoughts about this, too. But So this was the policy in Australia until um, the Black Saturday fires where people could not fight in 
and they could not stay. There was no way for them to survive that fire. Um, and in fact, Australia created another category of extreme wildfire um, after that event, um, unprecedented. And so California was considering this policy, actually, and ditched it um, as soon as that happened in Australia. And so... Um, when was that? It was like... That was 2009... Rod, did you have something to add to this, Rod? I've, I've had my fair share of... <laughs> I, I've taken shelter in three different homes uh, in my career because the fire was overrunning us and we needed to get out of the way. Uh, and what I really learned about was construction. Um, very different outcomes from each of the events, depending on the construction type of the house. Um, I was at, up on the High Meadow Fire out in Bailey, uh, fire just started running up the hill, crowned out. We all ran into the house, and it was very pleasant. It was a nice house, new construction. Um, Anything in the fridge? It was, you know, <laughs> fully stocked fridge, and, you know, we, had, we were fine. There was a little bit of smoke that came in, and uh, we had one you know, kid with asthma, so he started to have some issues. But um, So that tells you that there is still plenty of smoke inside a house. What, what you're, you're not going to die because you're not getting the heat exposure, but um, the smoke's still, again, positive pressure. It's just pushing against that house, and it's finding those little cracks. Um, but anyway, pretty, pretty um, survivable. But it did make me think, um, because we happened to be writing a plan for Santa Fe at the time, and we were recommending um, shelter in place, because pinion juniper fires tend to be very fast moving, and trying to get people out of the Santa Fe hills, if you've ever been there, uh, is its own little disaster waiting to happen. So we were like, you know, everybody's got Adobe, really good construction. It's PJ. They'll just, you know, hang out. But the what I realized was you, you, if you're not a trained person who's used to that kind of excitement, it's kind of a, you know, to tell somebody to stay and fight, there's a, it's pretty intense, not just the physical heat of it, but it's pretty crazy. It gets real dark, real hot, embers are flying, and you got to, it's not something you're just going to take casually, and, and you know, not every person is able to deal with it. But um, the other place I was in, this is just bizarre in its own self, but the, where I almost got closest to dying was in Nebraska. Uh, not what you would call a wildfire state, but turns out they have this little bit of forest in the northwest corner. <laughs> they have a lot less of it now. Uh, we've burned, I think, two-thirds of it at this point. But uh, we were on a fire there, and, and me and another guy got... Um, we were scouting, and next thing, it just made a huge run at us, so we took cover in this house. And I have great pictures of single-pane windows, uh, poor construction. I, I, you can see the smoke cranking through the eaves and rolling in the ceiling, and then uh, the two sliding doors just shattered. And that's when, you know, the fire rolled in on us. And we were in the garage huddled against some um, cinder blocks, and. You know, just thinking about life and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. And then, and then the embers started coming down to the ceiling. Uh, so this house just failed in, in about 10 minutes. It just completely failed and couldn't, couldn't deal with the heat from outside. So uh, really, it, it's not something I recommend, but when you sit inside a house and watch it burn from the outside in, you learn a lot about construction. <laughs> oh, uh, we, we basically moved ourselves... Um, out of that room and just played this game where we'd open the door, see how hot it was, 
how, and then finally when we realized we were, we were definitely going to die inside because all the furniture was now burning and we were hacking lung and we were like, let's make a run for it. And the biggest risk we had is we had left our vehicle in the driveway and we had no idea if it was still there. It could have been burned. So we ran out and we saw the lights flashing and I've never been so happy to see my truck. So we jumped in and we drove out. But that's, I don't know, that's, <laughs> that's what it's like in Stay and Defend. That's what I would say. The, uh, the only other thing I would add is uh, just from personal, I, I live in Bend, Oregon, which I predict is going to burn up one of these days here. And, and I've already planned, like, how do I get away from the fire? And in, in advance, different routes that I might take and even how I might go. For example, I've thought about I might be better off on my bicycle because I'm not going to get stuck in congested traffic. And all I got to do is get maybe two, you know, two or three, four miles to the east, and I'll, I'll be okay. Yeah. So uh, you know, just thinking in advance of what would you do so that you've already sort of planned it out in your head in an emergency. Um, this is more of just a, a thought-provoking comment. Um, we need to also consider prison populations. Um, a lot of the time, they don't actually have uh, appropriate evacuation uh, procedures, especially, you know, this has come up in hurricane country um, on the East Coast, but, you know, what are the wildfire evacuation processes for prison populations, which are majority black and Latino? Um, so just want to throw that out there. I don't really have a question, an answer to that. But um, if we're talking about stand and fight, um, they don't actually have a choice in that. So I, I just more human, I want to share the human element because it's, it, that's what this is about. Your question is really about, to me, it's a mental thing. Uh, the, the ability to stay and defend is, is you got to have some serious mental fortitude to do it. Um, and I'll tell you a story on the Formal Fire. You know, I was both a firefighter and a victim, as it turns out, later. But as I was running around, I was, you know, just scouting the fire and everything. I was also, a, you know, a neighbor. I lived in this neighborhood. So I go up my street and I find still some people who hadn't evacuated. We had evacuated, you know, we, pretty much everyone, but there were, there were these people who decided they were going to stay. And I remember I had this conversation with, a, with one of my neighbors and I said, I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm just going to stay here until the fire hits, you know, and she pointed out to this ridge. And I said, okay, and what are you going to do when the fire hits that ridge? She's like, I don't know. And I was like, so then why don't you just leave now? Because you don't have a plan. You know, you're just, but, but it's normal human behavior. There are all these people who are like, they're just, they, they had to do something because they couldn't deal with the idea of losing their homes. But my point is they, they had no plan. And they had, you know, and, they, and when you have a garden hose, there's nothing makes me laugh more than someone with a garden hose because that, that, that water will never reach the fire. It'll evaporate. The wind will blow it away. And, and at some point, that water is going to shut off, too. And that's what a lot of people didn't realize. So when they sell you these fire systems that are supposed to suddenly turn on sprinkler systems and foam your house and all that, that's great. But we shut off the power way before the fire ever gets to your neighborhood. And, and so there's, there's a lot of little things people don't realize that during the operational stuff that we do that are going to hinder your ability to stay and defend. Um, so it's something to think about. Hi, Victoria Schlesinger. I'm with uh, Bay Nature Magazine in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we cover fire all the time. Um, could somebody speak to the insurance piece of this, both with rebuilding in places like Coffee Park and um, not continuing to build in vulnerable areas and extending into those areas. 
So uh, I guess, uh, first I'll speak personally. Um, uh, again, you know, years of me watching homes burn in er areas and as a firefighter you leave and go to the next one and you don't really ever think about what happens after the fire. So when it happens to you, you suddenly learn a, a, an amazing amount of things uh, about the process and um, the insurance industry is a fairly complex system and dealing with, with the aftermath of, of a loss uh, when you go to make a claim on your home is, is eye-opening to say the least. But um, there's a lot of challenges it's, and it's, it's in a shared, it's sort of a shared responsibility. And I know that in Colorado they have someone, I forget the title of her, um, but she's like the liaison between insurance and, and the state. I can't think of her name. Uh, but anyway, yeah, and, and they sort of help to balance some of this because the insurance industry um, basically has, you know, the ability to just either not cover you at all, uh, which, which isn't really that common. It's, it's becoming more common, but, um, you know, a lot of people are afraid, like, oh, they're not going to insure me, but they'll insure anyone if you got the money. That's what it comes down to. So your premiums go up. But what we found was the difficulty was that um, I used to say to people, you know, there's a lot of people who insured a Buick and then they wanted a Mercedes Benz after the fire, um, which, which is, it goes back to the same thing. It's economics, right? Nobody wants to pay a higher premium. So nobody wants to go tell the insurance company that, hey, my house is probably worth more than it used to be, right? Because if we do that, they say, oh, it is? Your premium just went up. And a lot of my neighbors um, had been there for years and years and years, you know, since the 60s. And, and so they hadn't updated their policies. Um, and what's interesting is less the insurance industry, but the county has since those periods of time now requires all these green building points. So every one of us that was, you know, whatever the insurance industry figures out that uh, rebuild is $4 a square foot or $9 a square foot. It depends where you live. Well, Boulder County had all these requirements now that they didn't have 10 years ago to meet all the green points that made your house now 15 and $20 a square foot. So there was a lot of people who were adequately covered to rebuild, but not anymore because of the codes that have been put into place. And some of them for good reason, but nonetheless, um, a lot of people don't realize that. And so you find that out after the fact. So a lot, like I said, a lot of us had Buick coverage and we needed Mercedes-Benz coverage. Um, so that's on a personal note, uh, just some learning that I did there. Uh, but a lot of what my company does is actually we're working on a hazard and risk model for the insurance industry. Uh, trying to better detail risk and try to understand, um, you know, what, what the real risk is that uh, they should be covering. And, and we've been really struggling with it because uh, it, it, what um, we've been talking about is like, so fires, 90% of fires are easy to control or at least reasonable to control. But these extreme events that we're seeing now um, this is what I, I sort of argue back with the insurance people that I'm working with is, you know, it goes back to what I said before. I mean, every house can burn down at the end of the day. And if you're under the extreme conditions, um, there's nothing you can do. There's just, you know, and, and so they, what they want from us is a probability model. And they want to know 
what are the odds, right? That's all they really are talking about. What are the odds that this thing will burn down? And so when I do my modeling and I do it at what we call the 90th percentile weather, it shows a certain risk. But if I crank it up to the 99th percentile, which is what these fire events are looking like now, then all of a sudden just huge areas are at risk that wouldn't otherwise be at risk. I'm actually working in San Bruno in the South uh, Bay right now, um, San Mateo and all that area. And, you know, so uh, we were doing a modeling for them and that's sort of the same thing is, so uh, actually this is directly, um, it, when I query the weather for that area, it's very wet, as you know, the fog rolls in. There's, there's, the window for burning is very small. But given an extreme event, you have a ton of vegetation. So it's, it's potential versus probability. So, you know, I always tell people the potential is all that fuel that's sitting there. But what's the probability of it burning? That has to do with weather and climate. Um, and so that's what the insurance industry is looking at now. And they want us all to project for climate change. They want all the models to look at climate change as to, you know, increasing that, that risk factor. So there's a lot going on. Sure. So we have floodplain maps to handle flood risk, but we don't have equivalent national scale firescape maps to essentially drive um, the insurance, the carrots and the sticks that are changing how we're putting homes into flammable places. So floodplain maps, not firescape maps. However, the, an omnibus bill has now put in the, we need a national ha wildfire hazard map at the scale of the US. It's supposed to be delivered next summer. There's no money attached to this effort. Um, so this is like version 1.0 that we're going to get sometime next summer. And I think it's great that we're taking this step forward, but this needs to be like a national movement to say, hey, wait a second. Um, we're asking way too much of our firefighters. They're not going to solve this problem for us. And we have to be way more proactive, build better and burn better. And there's, I think there's hope in this also in the sense that like fire is something that people have a long, very intimate connection to over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's something that we can actually change and change the shape of. In fact, I want to highlight that white little box overhanging on the side of the wall. You know, that is representative of the fact that we actually changed building codes. We have sprinkler systems. You have to have fire hydrants in response to massive urban fires in Chicago. And so let's just think about that a moment. We have a critical moment right now in the history of our relationship to fire where we could actually do a lot to change how we're building into flammable ecosystems. Um. We got one last question. Why don't we get that in? Is that okay? Or do you uh, just take a really quick? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was on a radio show one time in Nevada City, California, and um, one of the points I made is that county commissioners around the West are part of the problem because they constantly have, most of them have never seen a, a, a development that they don't approve of. And, um, and, and, and it just is one of those issues that uh, building in the, uh, up in the woods at the end of a dirt road or something may be attractive to a lot of people, but that's a, a, a cost and a risk to everybody. It's a risk to firefighters, it's a risk to taxpayers that have to pay for this kind of stuff, and they're not paying the full price. And one thing with insurance is if the insurance premiums go up, at least that starts to maybe mitigate the tendency to build in such places. Okay, one last question. We're running a little bit late here, but uh, 
So I just have a quick question for Tony. We didn't get a chance to talk about grazing. Is there a place for sheep, goats, cattle to reduce those fine fuel loads? Well, they do reduce the fine fuel loads. And I think it's a, it's a matter of the, the right place at the right, you know, for the right values. And, and um, you don't know that George has written a lot more about grazing and livestock and those kinds of things. But I think there's this, there, there is, I think, potential for that. I'm not as familiar with that research as, as some of my colleagues. But I know that there has been, um, I think, I want to actually say that maybe some of the county governments have actually hired uh, goat herders to actually um, use as defensible space um, kind of reduction. And they, and they do a great job, and they're cheap, and they don't complain. And, um, uh, but I think at a, at a larger scale, I think there's, um, you know, the, w one of the things that we're also looking at is we want to restore some of that fine fuel back into some of the more natural ecosystems for more of the more of the ecological benefit and so it's kind of when and where and there's some nuance about with some of those details i think there's a lot of tools in the toolbox sometimes we apply the hammer and then the whole world's a nail and so um yeah and one thing i will say is that when when we look at those white boxes, the the the, the reason why is that it's as recent as 1989, um, uh, human life loss as a result of structural fire was enormous, and property value these were like multi-billion-dollar problems. And the federal government and the insurance company invested hundreds of million dollars into research to develop standards and those kinds of things. We now see that wildland fire losses, both from a, a su suppression uh, expenditures as well as to, to, to human prop life and property, are now mounting into probably $3 billion, $5 billion a year. And you look at the research that goes into wildland fire, it's like $5 million. And so we are an order of magnitude. So we're, we're, we're spending 5 to $10 million a year on wildland fire research when this is a $5 billion problem. And um, I'll say one thing and pass this over to George on the grazing thing. Look into the Los Conchas fire in New Mexico, which is their largest fire, and it deals with the amount of grazing that should be appropriate. In the case of those forests, uh, they were badly overgrazed, and that allowed ponderosa pines and other trees to encroach into areas where they hadn't been. So they had a lot more heavy fuel because they'd removed all the fine fuel with grazing. Uh, again, making the point about extreme fire weather, there's a, a paper done by the range department at Arizona State that's widely cited suggesting that grazing will reduce fires. And they go through all the things. First of all, they just have a couple of plots that are only a couple of acres, and then they model based on that. But nevertheless, the very next to the last paragraph said, um, this might work during low fire conditions, but under extreme fire weather conditions, it totally does you no good. And, uh, and the point being is the fires that we're concerned about are the ones that are burning under the extreme conditions. So as a solution to those kinds of uh, fires that we're concerned about, it's likely not to uh, work in most cases. Um, they, we're running late here. Is it okay? I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> Rude. Um, I want to give our panel a hand. We covered a lot. Of